Chapter 18 of The Turn of the Tide. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Candace Stalick, Dallas, Texas. The Turn of the Tide by Eleanor H. Porter. Chapter 18. Margaret Kendall did not sleep well the night after the picnic at Silver Lake. She was restless, and she tossed from side to side, finding nowhere a position that brought ease of mind and body. She closed her eyes and tried to sleep, but her active brain painted the dark with a panorama of the day's happenings, and whether her eyes were open or closed, she was forced to see it. There were the lake, the mountain, and the dainty luncheon spread on the grass, and there were the faces of the merry friends who had accompanied her. There were the shifting scenes of the homeward ride, too, with the towers of Hillcrest showing dark and clear-cut against a blood-red sky. But everywhere, from the lake, the mountain, and even Hillcrest itself, looked out strange wan faces with hollow cheeks and mournful eyes, and everywhere fluttered the ragged skirts of a child's pink calico dress. It was two o'clock when Margaret arose, thrust her feet into a pair of bed slippers, and her arms into the sleeves of a long, loose dressing gown. There was no moon, but a starlit sky could be seen through the open windows, and margaret easily found her way across the room to the door that led to the balcony margaret's room like the dining-room below looked toward the west in the far-reaching meadows but from the turn of the balcony where it curved to the left one might see the town and it was toward this curve that margaret walked now once there she stopped and stood motionless her slender hands on the balcony rail the night was wonderfully clear. The wide dome of the sky twinkled with a myriad of stars and seemed to laugh at the town below with its puny little lights blinking up out of the dark where the streets crossed and recrossed. Over by the river where the mills pointed big black fingers at the sky, however, the lights did not blink. They blazed in tier upon tier, and line upon line of windows, and they glowed with a never-ending glare that sent a shudder to the watching girl on the balcony. And they're working now, now, she almost sobbed. Then she turned with a little cry and ran down the balcony toward her room, where was waiting the cool soft bed with the lavender-scented sheets. In spite of the restless night she had spent, Margaret arose early the next morning. The house was very quiet when she came downstairs, and only subdued rustle of the parlor's maid skirts broke the silence of the great hall, which was also the living room at Hillcrest. "'Good morning, Betty.' "'Good morning, miss,' curtsied the girl. Miss Kendall had almost reached the outer hall door when she turned abruptly. Betty, you, you don't know a little child named, uh, Maggie, do you? she asked. Ma'am? Betty almost dropped the vase she was dusting. Maggie, a little girl named Maggie. She's one of the, the mill people's children, I think. Betty drew herself erect. No, miss, I don't, she said crisply. 
No, of course not, murmured Miss Kendall, unconsciously acknowledging the reproach in Betty's voice. Then she turned and went out the wide hall door. Twice she walked from end to end of the long veranda, but not once did she look toward the mills. And when she sat down a little later, her chair was so placed that it did not command a view of the red and brown roofs of the town. Miss Kendall was restless that day. She rode and drove and sang and played and won at golf and tennis, but behind it all was a feverish gaiety that came sometimes periously near to recklessness. Frank Spencer and his sister watched her with troubled eyes, and even Ned gave her an anxious frown once or twice. Just before dinner, Brandon came upon her alone in the music room where she was racing her fingers through the runs and trills of an impromptu at an almost impossible speed. If you take me motoring with you tonight, Miss Kendall, he said whimsically, when the music had ceased with a crashing chord, if you take me tonight, I shall make sure that the brakes are on my side of the car. The girl laughed, then grew suddenly grave. You would need to, she acceded, but... I shall not take you or anyone else motoring tonight. In the early evening after dinner, Margaret sought her guardian. He was at his desk in his own special den out of the library, and the door was open. May I come in? she asked. Spencer sprang to his feet. By all means, he cried as he placed a chair. You don't often honor me like this. But this is where you do business. When at home, isn't it? She inquired. And I, I have come to do business. The man laughed. So it's business, just plain sordid business, to which I am indebted for this? He bemoaned playfully. Well, and what is it? Income too small for expense? He chuckled a little, and he could afford to. Margaret had made no mistake in asking him still to have the handling of her property. The results had been eminently satisfactory, both to his pride and her pocketbook. No, no, it's not that. It's the mills. The mills? Yes, it is quite, quite necessary to work. Nights? For a moment the man stared wordlessly. Then he fell back in his chair. Why... Margaret, what in the world? He stopped from sheer inability to proceed. He had suddenly remembered the stories he had heard of the early life of this girl before him and of her childhood's horror and the difference between the lot of the rich and the poor. Last night we, we came through the town, explained Margaret, a little feverishly, and Mr. Brandon happened to mention that they were nights the man at the desk roused himself yes i see he said kindly you were surprised of course but don't worry my child or let it fret you a moment it's nothing new they are used to it they've done it for years but at night all night it, it doesn't seem right and it must be so hard must they do it why of course. The other mills run nights. Why shouldn't ours? They expect it, Margaret. Besides, they are paid for it. Come, come, dear girl. Just look at it sensibly. Why, 
it's the night's work that helps to swell your dividends. Margaret winced. I, I think I'd prefer them smaller, she faltered. She hesitated, then spoke again. There's another thing, too, I, I wanted to ask you about. There was a little girl, Maggie. She lives in one of those shabby, unpainted houses at the foot of the hill. I want to do something for her. Will you see this reaches her mother, please? And she held out a fat roll of closely folded bills. Now don't, please, don't, she cried, as she saw the man's remonstrative gesture. Please don't say you can't. And that indiscriminate giving encourages pauperism. I used to hear that so often at school whenever I wanted to give something, and I hated it. If you could have been that poor little girl yesterday, you will see that she gets it, won't you? But Margaret, began the man helplessly, I don't know the child. There are so many... He stopped, and Margaret picked up the drop thread. But you can find out, she urged. You must find out. Her name's Maggie. You can inquire. Someone will know. But don't you see? The man's face cleared suddenly. I'll give it to Della. He broke off in quick relief. She runs the charity part, and she'll know just what to do with it. Meanwhile, let me thank you. No, no, interrupted Margaret, rising to go. It is you I have to thank for doing it for me. She finished as she hurried from the room. By George, muttered the man, as he looked at the denominations of the bills in his fingers. I'm not so sure, but we may have our hands full after all. Certainly, if she keeps on as she's begun. End of chapter 18. Recording by Candace Stalick, Dallas, Texas.